Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Thursday, February 13th. Thanks so much for tuning in here. If you have something you want to hear more about or have some burning questions you want answered or maybe you just want to say hi, don't hesitate to give me a call. Shoot me an email at jandreas at stingray.com or shoot me up on Twitter at Jeffrey underscore Andreas, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y underscore A-N-D-R-E-A-S. I have a good show lined up here for the day. In a little bit, I'll be joined by the owner of Go Forth Composting, a local composting service service that is filling the void here in Kamloops. The city does not have any real composting program, so Lisa Forth will join me in a short while to discuss just what she is doing to make sure that those composting services are available to the people of Kamloops. To kick off the back half of the show, I will be joined by the BC NDP's Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity, Mitzi Dean. This week, BC Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson was asked about the throne speech and referred to people who are dealing with situations of domestic violence as being in a tough marriage. Not something Mitzi was too happy to hear about. So Wilkinson has since apologized for his choice of words, but I'll ask Miss Miss Dean there if she thinks that was a good enough apology. So she'll be coming up at around the 35-minute mark of this hour. And to begin things, and to end things off, it will be time for a little Throwback Thursday. But to begin today's show, I want to talk... Defibrillators. Yes, on Tuesday, there was a scary moment in an NHL game between the Anaheim Ducks and St. Louis Blues. Uh, in the first period, Blues defenseman Jay Bomeister was on the bench, uh, and he collapsed after suffering from a cardiac episode. Thankfully, he was able to be revived with the use of a defibrillator, and the team says he is now doing well. But it was another example of how critical it can be to have life-saving equipment nearby when such a situation occurs. Just how prepared are we here in Kamloops if something were to happen like that? Well, I am joined on the line now by the city's aquatics supervisor, Andrew Smeaton. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time here. Hey, you're welcome. So when we're talking AEDs or automated external defibrillators, what is the policy that is currently in place when it comes to recreational facilities here in Kamloops? So all of our recreational facilities are currently equipped with an AED. And uh, I think this is really important because, uh, as we saw in the case with Joe Bomeister, or I think mean Jay Bomeister, they uh, were able to respond immediately to the situation. And uh, so if you respond within the first minute with an AED, then the survival rate for someone with a sudden cardiac arrest is about 90%. But every minute that goes by, that uh, survival rate is going down and going down. So uh, having them in all of our facilities is super important. Now, with that said, um, access to these machines is probably pretty important that it be easy to to see, easy to locate, and then easy to use. So when it comes comes to locating them, just, you know, I've played uh, in most of the hockey arenas here in the city, um, and it isn't something I've really ever kept my eye out for. So I'm not totally sure where some of these machines would be. So just how tough would it be to find, uh, you know, if something were to happen? Is it, is it pretty easy to locate, or how, how would someone go about locating these AEDs? Yeah, it should be easy to locate. In most of our arenas, it's in the lobby uh, area. So sending someone out to the lobby, and then there's basically a, a big steel box. It's about a foot and a half by a foot and a half, and it has a sign above it that has the AED uh, logo and symbol on it and um, you can look for the steel box or the AED sign in the facility lobby and also all of the facility staff 
are uh, going to be trained in use and know where the AEDs are because they're going to be checking them on a daily basis. Perfect. So they are, you know, pretty well upkept and looking at, uh, you know, making sure they work and making sure they're maintained. That that's kind of falls on those uh, uh, attendants of whatever facility we're talking about, and they're uh, doing that on a, a pretty regular basis, it sounds like? Yeah, they need to be checking them on a regular basis. The, the units that we get are provided by a company called uh, Iridium Medical. Uh, so they're a, a commercial unit, and they have a, a display, like an LED display in them that says if the unit is, is in good repair and ready to be used. And um, so when our staff are going by, all they have to do is, is look at the unit, see if that LED display is lit up, and if it says that everything is good to go. So it's easy to tell if it's ready to be used and uh, go from there. You know, I, I, it's been a long time. I, I took a CPR course uh, or a first aid course way back in the day. It probably needs to be renewed at some point. But uh, it, sound, mm-hmm. it seemed at that point that uh, using these uh, AEDs was a pretty simple procedure. I, I think the one I took, it actually told me basically what to do, the machine itself. So if an arena attendant uh, or an attendant weren't available uh, for whatever reason at the exact moment that something were happening, how difficult would it be for just, uh, you know, Joe Blow off the road to, to try and, and use one of these machines? Is it difficult? Is it easy? I would say that it's fairly easy to use. The machine, like you said, actually talks you through the process of using it. So as soon as someone, say, collapses, uh, the first response should be um, calling for help, seeing if anyone is trained, and also trying to access an AED. So immediately send someone to go and find the AED, uh, send them to the lobby, and that's a good place to start, and then um, bring the AED back to the person. Um, as soon as you open up the AED, it's going to start giving you prompts about what to do. It has pictures inside there about where you need to place. There's um, electrical pads that you would have to uh, connect and place on the person, and the AED will tell you exactly what to do. It tells you where to place them. It also has pictures of where to place them, and then it tells you um, for example, it says to start compressions, and it also tells you to stop compressions so that it can analyze what's going on. It tells you the exact steps that you need to follow um, in order to help the person best. Yeah, I think that's pretty critical uh, tool to have, right? I mean, not always is someone going to be uh, readily available that uh, has been trained on these machines. So the fact that it does talk you through and, and keeps it simple, I think, is really important and, and sure very life-saving as well. Any idea how often these machines are getting used? I Hopefully not very often, but I assume that, uh, I believe it was 2013 that the province put the policy in place that uh, AEDs had to be in place at at least all arenas. Um, do you have any idea just yeah. how frequently they have to be used? Yeah, so we basically, because if anyone were to collapse and it seems like it's a a cardiac arrest episode, um, we always tell people go and get the AED and put it on someone Um, because even if it isn't, it's a good idea to have the equipment there and put it on the person so then if it was, you're ready to go. Um, So... Cases like that of us getting the AD and actually attaching it to someone, I would say in our facilities happens two to three times a year. Um, in terms of the AD actually activating, um, in my understanding in the past uh, seven years, we've had uh, three or four incidents of the AD actually activating in our, our facilities, one of our public access AEDs. 
Well, so uh, obviously not being used very often, but once every couple of years, it, it seems to have a potentially life-saving impact. So uh, that's definitely yeah. often enough that it's noteworthy and, and something to take into consideration. Like I had said, I, I know that policy applied to arenas. Is that um, is that all recreational facilities in, in the city that are under this policy? I mean, it doesn't really matter, I guess, if it's part of the policy or not, because I am pretty sure that uh, this is the case across all recreational facilities, is that there is an AED available, right? Yeah, that's correct. So we have 29 in the city. Um, we have them in all of our indoor facilities and also all of our um, public access buildings. So, for instance, like City Hall, uh, where people were expecting a large number of the public to be going in and out. Um, we've also started to expand the program uh, away from specifically city-owned facilities to other places where we would expect there to be a, a high need. And so, for example, um, we have them installed at uh, Sagebrush Theatre as well, and also the, the Pavilion Theatre. We have them uh, available with the uh, Tennis Club and the Pickleball Club, uh, which has locations both in Riverside Park and on MacArthur Island. Um, and we have them at some of our uh, sports fields as well. Uh, the main issue at our sports field is, unfortunately, um, them being being stolen so um we have them locked up at our sports fields and unlocked during events and high use times uh to try and keep them there for when they're needed the most that's um an interesting thing for someone to want to steal i never would have thought of that as really being an issue yeah so i think people see them and see oh that's something that looks nice and of value and then um they end up walking away sometimes so uh, our, that's our, our biggest reason for um, for loss of these devices is not because they're failing or they're getting old they're not being able to use it anymore it's that unfortunately people are, are taking them occasionally hmm. that's bizarre too yeah. that's uh, <laughs> it's just not something I would have I thought know. of as being an issue for this uh, this particular product um, I think that's yeah. pretty much all I had for you here, Andrew. I guess uh, before I let you go, when we're talking about uh, having to replace them, I mean, you had mentioned that it's not um, coming from the city, these machines. Does the city have to pay to, to replace them if something were to get stolen, and, and how much does that cost? The city is the um, basically the replacer, and we also maintain the devices. So even if someone else approaches us and says, hey, we want to have an AED in our location, um, we'll support them in that. We can help them get quotes and all that uh, kind of stuff. And uh, after that point on, once they have it on location, we try to help them maintain uh, the equipment because we're not able to um, provide a lot of AEDs. So the, the upfront cost of an AED is about $1,900. And then uh, the ongoing maintenance for the AED is is roughly $120 every every two years. So um, the ongoing maintenance cost isn't isn't crazy high, and uh, so basically, um, yeah, we maintain them and we replace them as they go missing or are are stolen, and uh, that is uh, our main priority right now. Right on. Well, it's definitely not uh, not a ton of money, especially considering uh, the life-saving work that they do. So thank you so much for taking the time, Andrew. I really appreciate you coming on and, and I think uh, supplying some important information for people in the in the community. If uh, something were to happen, uh, hopefully they're uh, a little more equipped to know what to do. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. And if anyone's interested in uh, courses on how to operate them, we run them through 
the Recreation Department in the City of Kamloops, and you can also reach out to other organizations like uh, St. John's uh, or the Red Cross that provide those courses as well. Uh, the more people that have the information on how to help someone, the better. So I encourage people to look into um, those courses and resources if they're interested. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, Andrew, and, and have a great rest of your Thursday. Hey, you're welcome. That was the city's aquatic supervisor, Andrew Smeaton. Definitely some important info for people to keep in mind. Um, you know, it always, you know, I think is one of the hardest things when seeing someone in distress, you know, actually jumping into action. So whenever you're in a group, people often look around and expect someone else to take care of business, but uh, we shouldn't hesitate. If you see something, say something, and do what you can to potentially save someone's life. And it's a good thing these AEDs are available at all city facilities. Coming up next, it's time to talk composting. So that'll be coming up after the break. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on Thursday. Last summer, I had spoke with a Kamloops woman who was petitioning for curbside compost services, similar to other programs run in many municipalities throughout Canada. But this city, Kamloops, does not have such a thing, and another local woman here has done what she can to help fill the gap. I am joined now in studio by the owner of Go Forth Composting, Lisa Forth. Lisa, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let me just start with the name. I mean, how long did it take to come up with that? I mean, it's pretty creative, I think. Uh, thanks. Um, I've sort of always been an entrepreneur at heart, so I thought if I started my own business, it'd be nice to sort of squeeze my name in it being sort of a unique last name. So um, it's sort of, I, I like puns and having fun. So yeah, it was just a way to kind of uh, draw attention to like go forth, go for us, my business, as well as um, go forth as in forward thinking and mm -hmm. sustainable living. So. Yeah, I love it. That's great. <laughs> um, so this started in 2015, 2016-ish. Um, you know, what was it, I guess, that got you into the composting game? Yeah, it was after, I think we had a long winter and I had had my first son and a lot had changed. So finally getting out into the yard in the spring and I've always really, um, you know, horticulture therapy and just being in the yard, I know how much that uh, has helped me over over time. But anyways, I was thinking, what else can I do in the yard and what else can I be doing? And uh, composting uh, was something I was new to, and I just wanted to see where the city was going with it. So I um, did a little bit of research, and I saw that Marcia Dick had... Um, uh, started done a pilot project um, doing the similar thing. She was actually doing it all on a, an electric bike with a, towing it behind her on a trailer. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so it was a it was a big deal and it got attention and as it should, you know, trying to uh, trying to see who who was all interested. Um, so when I approached her, she just said that um, she had started working full time and she wanted to continue this after the winter. And if I was interested in starting and helping out with it, that that would be great. So she wrote me a really nice letter of recommendation to the few customers that we had, and it just blossomed from there. Yeah, so I mean, with that being said, like, how, how much response have you gotten? You've been pretty well received. It's been around for a few years now, and uh, you know, just how much has it really taken off? It has really taken off. I haven't done any advertising because, again, I'm being a stay-at-home mom. I didn't know how much time I could contribute uh, outwards, and I knew there was a lot of potential with... Um, you know, being there's so many residents in Camelos, we're not a small municipality or anything. So I kept it under wraps. I made a small Facebook page, but um, I just said to anyone who was interested and uh, 
sure, like sign up and give it a try if you like. And I think it's still a certain special demographic that wants to, you still have to put it in the pail, you have to set it aside, you have to, it's a paid for service. So, um, but every time I talk to someone, two more people are interested in starting up. So it's, it's grown exponentially for sure. So with that being said, I mean, just what kind of volumes are you dealing with? I mean, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, I assume this has gotten pretty big over the last uh, few years. Yeah. So just these contracts um, that were mentioned in the uh, Info News article that was written. Um, so there are a few commercial businesses that uh, it, it works out to about. Uh, I do about 2,400 pounds a month. Wow. Yeah, so, and that works out to, you know, roughly 13 tons a year. So um, I, that sounds like a lot when you hear it like that, but really um, you pick up and it's a few hundred pounds a week and you process it through the Joras and each Jora, they're, they're quite large and you... It sounds like a lot, but it's not a lot of work. Like it's composting. Once you get it d down and you kind of get mm -hmm. a niche for uh, uh, the hand, a handle on it, you, uh, it's, it's, uh, what I'm trying to say is like it sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much. Like it's, and it can be anyone can do it. Like it's really, um, yeah, it's. And then I mean, it breaks down all from 60 to 70 percent. They say too in volume. So okay. what I've been left with after doing 11 tons last year is about two square yards of completed compost. So. So how do you go about collecting this material? Like, do you go pick it up? Do people drop it off? How does that work? Yeah. So uh, do you mean like the new process or mm -hmm. what I've been doing so far? Well, take me through both. Let's sure. start with the old process and yeah. we'll go to the new. No, that's fine. Yeah, I, I pick it up right now. Um, it just takes me a few minutes at each place to pick up, and it takes me about half an hour to process it. And then I go there through. I have a few different sites that I work with, and I it takes me, you know, 30 minutes to mm -hmm. an hour to do uh, all of that a few times a week. So there's not a lot of time involved. But then this drop-off service, pickup service. The problem I found with pickup service was that because there was only about 20 people signed up. It was about a 74-kilometer round trip around Clam Loops every other week. So it was where the numbers weren't working for everybody, you know, so and stuff. So I revamped and I had a lot of people saying, well, they'll drop it off. So with that being said, um, now the drop-off service, it'll be just Saturdays, 9 to noon is what I think would be a good time just to start. All of this is a pilot project. So it's all just to see what kind of response we'll get and, mm -hmm. and how it'll go. And... Uh, where the business can grow from there as well. Anyways, uh, so at the drop-off service 9 to noon, you can bring it in your own pail. I do have some pails at my house that you can take with you and bring back or or whatever you'd like. But some people asked about bringing it in like um, compostable bags and things like that. Whatever you like, whatever you're comfortable mm -hmm. bringing it down. But in a roughly a five-ton or five-gallon pail mass and... Uh, the, uh, and they take their pail home with you. Basically, they'll just dump it out and take. We'll give it a right. wipe and take it home, and uh, or they can switch it for a new pail if they're right on. Yeah. Uh, well, we have about thirty seconds left here, Lisa. So just uh, you know, it is almost gardening season. I know it's still February, but we're getting close. So uh, just anything you want people to be aware of as they sort of get their green thumbs ready here. Yeah, um, I mean, soil amendments, the first thing you do always, right? So whatever kind of um, fertilizer or compost you're using, um, keep in mind that anyone can compost and just about anything is compostable. So um, I don't have enough to even offer really anybody yet. But if they do need some or they need some advice, I'm always available for answers there. Yeah. Right on, Lisa. Well, thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. And we'll look to the, to the spring to start gardening. Thanks very much. Awesome. That was Lisa Forth with Go Forth Composting. You can find them on Facebook and uh, learn a little bit more there as well. Coming up next, I'll be joined by the province's Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity. I'll be speaking with Mitzi Dean after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. 
Welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Thursday, February 13th. Thanks so much for tuning in. In the throne speech this week, the B.C. NDP government pledged to provide five days of paid leave to people leaving domestic and sexual violence situations. Well, when B.C. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson was asked about the throne speech and what was uh, provided in that speech, he had some interesting comments. So let's take a quick listen to this soundbite from earlier in the week. So what do you think about this throne speech? Well, it's a huge disappointment because there's absolutely nothing in it. They basically talked about what's happened in the last two years and offered next to nothing uh, for the future. They talked about guns in hospitals, which nobody has ever heard of. They talked about rural policing, and they talked about five days pay for people who are in a tough marriage, and that's it. So there was some people out there who had some concerns around that phrasing when he basically referred to people who are living in domestic violence situations as being in a tough marriage. Now, following those comments, the B.C. Liberal leader did apologize. He wrote on Twitter saying, quote, This was the wrong choice of words, and I got it wrong. Victims of domestic violence need their voices heard and are unwavering support, and I want everyone to know that they have that with me, end quote. So, um, you know, obviously, some people out there weren't too happy, and uh, he obviously was able to realize that his choice of words maybe wasn't something that everyone would agree with, so he did uh, retract that a little bit, but uh, you know, there are, like I said, some people out there who were a little bit offended by just how he referred to those victims. Here now to respond to that initial comments and the subsequent apology is the NDP's Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity, Mitzi Dean. Mitzi, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak to me here today. Thank you so much for your interest in this. Yeah, so I just want to start by getting your initial reaction to the original comment that Mr. Wilkinson made. So clearly you weren't too happy with the way that he portrayed the issue uh, by referring to people who are in a difficult marriage as the those who are experiencing sexual violence and, 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 uh, and domestic violence, being in a difficult marriage, not, not the best choice of words in your opinion. Well, it shows the lack of understanding of the issue. It shows a lack of compassion for people who experience sexual assaults and domestic violence and just shows, again, that the leader of the opposition is out of touch. Now, he did, like I mentioned there, respond via Twitter, uh, you know, apologizing for, for what he had said and, and the way he had said it. But, uh, you know, I, I guess, how do you feel about that apology itself? Were you, were you happy to see that he, uh, you know, did make the apology and, and did say that he was, I guess, sorry for the, the terms that he used? Well, I mean, really, he was just saying that he thought that he used the wrong words. It's absolutely shocking that his first initial response was saying that it was a tough marriage. You know, it shows a real lack of understanding of the prevalence of the incidents of uh, domestic violence and sexual assault across our province. It's a real priority for me and for my team. Um, and we also need to recognize that Indigenous women, for example, experience domestic violence 2.7 times more than non-Indigenous women and sexual assault three times more. So we have some really serious issues here that our government is actually trying to tackle and address. So what, what is it about it that I guess concerns you most is that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who probably have a, a similar viewpoint to Andrew Wilkinson and that, you know, they may not be very empathetic or sympathetic to, to people who are in these kinds of difficult situations. And when you hear a leader of a party, a political party, using this kind of terminology referring to people, uh, you know, who are experiencing some form of domestic or sexual violence as being in a difficult marriage, um, that's clearly a, a portrayal of how a lot of other people in this province would feel as well. I mean, what, what are your concerns? just about the fact that a political leader would have those kinds of comments and, and the fact that it does reflect on a large portion probably of our population. 
Well, exactly. I think it's irresponsible. He's in a position of leadership. Um, you know, and I do think that leaders of political parties should be better understanding of exactly what happens in our BC communities. And of course, you know, let's not forget that this was the party that um, actually closed down women's centres, cut back services and resources in the community, shut down sexual assault response centres for women. And so it's really indicative of you know, what would happen in the future if his party actually was in government. It's very worrying for women across the province, for um, anybody who's a victim of any of these uh, violent crimes. And, you know, let's remember the transgender community as well, who are also over-targeted. Um, you know, we're, it's really concerning that if leaders of political parties don't understand the issue, that the resources won't be there and that people won't be able to access the services that they need, where they need them and when they need them. So what do you think needs to be done, uh, you know, for people who have this sort of like mind as Mr. Wilkinson does? Uh, what do you think has to be done to really, uh, you know, put it into their heads that, uh, you know, these aren't, um, you know, easy situations to be in? I think people probably, you know, on the surface understand that being a victim of these kinds of situations is not something that's easy to deal with. But uh, clearly there's a large portion of the population that just brushes it off. So what, what do you think needs to be done to get it into people's minds that, you know, these people that are, are dealing with these really tough positions and being in a situation where they are being taken advantage of, um, you know, to make sure that they're not being overlooked and, and they're not being just sort of brushed aside. Is there, is there you know, a letter campaign or do is it a matter of, um, you know, people writing to Mr. Wilkinson to say, you know, I'm not okay with how you portrayed uh, victims of domestic violence and we need this to change? What, what can be done to really drive that message home? Yeah, and there are a lot of initiatives that our government is supporting. I mean, if people want to write to Mr. Wilkinson to, um, you know, explain to him that he needs to actually become better educated on these issues, then I guess that's something your listeners might want to think about. But for the general population in British Columbia, we have the Be More Than a Bystander um, campaign, which is run out of the Ending Violence Association of BC, which is um, like sportsmen actually standing up and talking about these issues that... Um, you know, affect so many people across our province and make it make it accessible to people who might not otherwise be educated on these matters. There's the Moosehide campaign. They have a, a fasting ceremony and a march here in Victoria, and that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. We run campaigns on post-secondary institution campuses now to um, try and educate people about consent around sexual assault, for example. So, that, you know, there are ways that um, we can actually try and get the word out and try try and uh, make sure that people understand what is not acceptable. You know, it is not acceptable to use violence with your intimate partner. And yet, you know, women experience um, really high rates of intimate partner violence. It, you know, and sexual assault as well. We know that people need to be better educated on consent and take better responsibility for their actions as well. I think for people who have experienced sexual assault, domestic violence, um, you know, it's, it's re-triggering, it's re-traumatizing, it uh, is really abusive to have somebody as a public figure to really dismiss those experiences. And I know for all your listeners out there, there's someone who's listening now, there are people who are listening now who've got friends and family who may be experiencing domestic violence, may have been sexually assaulted, and they need to know that their government is there to, to look out for them and protect them, and uh, we will deliver the services that they need. And if anybody has been abused, assaulted, 
please reach out and find the resources that you need. Yeah, I appreciate you, uh, you know, bringing some attention to a number of those initiatives. There, I think they're important to to make sure that uh, the word does get out that there are supports available. And and just for those who maybe are ignorant, I guess you know, uh, to to the issues that come along with being a, a victim of domestic or sexual violence, um, you know, people need to have a little more empathy or a little more sympathy to those people than than clearly some some people out there do. Um, I, I did want to ask too. I mean, since that kind of came up as a result of of these comments um, just talking about what was in the throne speech itself with that five days of paid leave for victims uh, of domestic or sexual abuse I mean can you just take me through why this you think this is an important piece to have in there and why it's a good initiative moving forward to make sure that there is a, a few days of paid leave for people who are in these ex- these situations to try to get out well it's really important because it's such a traumatizing time and then there are also so many other things that people need to do to rebuild their lives so for example uh, somebody might be getting away from domestic violence which means they've actually got to move um they might have to find new schools for their kids um someone who has experienced sexual assault might need to have medical attention might need to have a forensic um, assessment done there's often uh involvement of lawyers of uh the court system and all these things place demands on people at a time when they've just been traumatized and they need help and support um and they're, they're having to you know put themselves at risk of maybe losing their job or not having enough money to to take care of their family um, and so it's really important that they have that stability and they have access to paid leave, which can be taken in small um, times, not necessarily just in one big mm-hmm. one big chunk, because these things take a long time. It takes a long time to rebuild your life after you've experienced domestic violence or sexual assault. And I, you know, I agree with you. I think out in out in general in society, there are rape myths and there are stereotypes. We we have to continue doing the work of breaking those down and if we can work with employers and help them understand what the impact is of domestic violence and sexual assault through uh you know making sure they understand what their what the rights of workers are to this paid leave then that's another way of raising awareness and of debunking those myths and making sure that victims aren't blamed and making sure that uh, the, the response is appropriate and compassionate and uh, people can actually be supported early in the process so that they'll be more successful in recovery. Yeah. Uh, hopefully there are majority of empl- employers would, would feel that way and, and are sympathetic and empathetic to that and, and you know, I, I think that's always the the concern I have is when people, um, you know, want to take this time off to make sure their lives are in order and, and make sure they're in a, a safe situation that sometimes employers may not be so forgiving of that time. Is, is that something that you have any concerns with? Well, when we did consultation, we did work, we did um, consultation focus groups with employers, representatives, as well as with labour, as well as with um, people serving women in the women's sector. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, employers are experiencing the impact on their workplace now already, because people are being sexually assaulted, there is domestic violence. And so there's absenteeism from work, for example, there are risks. Um, associated with, you know, potentially people coming to the workplace and 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 making the workplace a, 
a vulnerable or a threatened place. Um, there's low productivity um, for, for if, um, if maybe you know in some situations where someone's experienced domestic violence or sexual assault. And you know for for employers, the investment in helping people recover and rebuild early on and in a healthy and a successful way means that they think an employee an employee who's much more functional, much more effective, much more engaged. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are lots of positives to it because at the moment there's a, there's a downside in the sense that, um, you know, some people wouldn't, would, would actually just keep trying to come to work or would just be off from work far too much. And that's an issue that employers recognize as well. And the, the employers' representatives that we spoke to, you know, they are empathic. To, you know, they're very sympathetic to this. And I think they do see that you know it, it's a it's a, it'll be a small proportion of employees, um, and as I said, you know that the issue is already there and impacting the workplace anyway. So this way will actually hopefully mean that uh, the recovery is sooner and faster and stronger, and then the employee is is a much more effective person in the workforce. Perfect. I have one more question for you, Mitzi, before I let you go. Um, I have done interviews in the past with uh, the BC Federation of Labor about this exact subject, uh, and I believe it was in the fall they had launched a campaign that was lobbying for 10 days of a paid leave for victims of domestic and sexual violence. Uh, so, I mean, five days, is it's a start. I mean, do you believe that's enough? Do you believe there needs to be more? Um, you know, just what is your opinion on that five-day time frame as it stands right now? Yeah, well, we did a scan across all of the provinces um, in Canada, and some of them only provide one or two days. Um, so by providing five, we'll be up there with um, the other provinces that are, that are providing that amount. I really appreciate the work that the Federation has done in terms of its advocacy and its negotiating as well. So some union members in their collective agreement have 10 days. You know, this is we listen to lots of different groups, as I said earlier on, and so this is where we've landed for now, and obviously we'll we'll keep it under review. And um, you know, always happy to hear more feedback on that. Well, Mitzi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. I think it's a really important subject, and hopefully our uh, political leaders here in BC will be a little more careful with the words they use in the future. But even more important than that, um, you know, be a little more uh, up to date on, on their actual opinions as well. So, thank you so much. Thank you for that. That was the BC NDP Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity, Mitzi Dean. We're talking about those uh, comments made by Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson yesterday when he referred to victims of domestic violence as people who are in a tough marriage. Like I said, uh, Wilkinson did go on to apologize for his choice of words, um, but still some concern just about what that overall terminology means. Uh, I know we live in this PC world where uh, everyone is scrutinized maybe a little too much for some of the things they say, but it is important to be uh, sympathetic when dealing with uh, people who are going through tough situations. Situations and, and not undermine those situations that they might be in. Uh, there was a quote here also from the End Violence BC who said, uh, BC Liberal leader Wilkinson's characterized domestic violence today as a tough marriage, or this was from yesterday. Um, they say, it's much more, and we beg you to get informed as domestic and sexual violence occurs upwards of 60,000 times a year in BC alone and deeply affects whole families. So definitely uh, some, some numbers and some stats to keep in mind. There's 60,000 times a year in British Columbia alone that someone is a victim of domestic and sexual violence. That's a, a, an alarming figure and, and definitely something that people need to uh, take into account when, when referring to victims. Coming up next, it's going to be time for a little Throwback Thursday. Hashtag TBT. That is coming up after this. 
Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Thursday, February 13th. And thanks so much for keeping your radios tuned right here to Radio NL. Today, like I said, is Thursday, so it's time for a little TBT, a little throwback Thursday. On this day, February 13th, 1970, yes, 50 years ago today, Black Sabbath released their debut self-titled album in the UK. It was a Friday the 13th. I'm going to assume they did that on purpose. Uh, lead, uh, Tony Iommi, the group's guitar player and founding member, says the album was recorded in a single day on October 16th, 1969, and that session lasted a dozen hours. That is a lot of continuous time to be spending in a studio. I can tell you that. Overall, I mean, it's a, a pretty short, I think, amount of time to record an entire album, but it is not a lot of time to try and get it all done in one sitting. The album itself is 38 minutes long, so 12 hours of recording time for less than 40 minutes of music. Now, of course, this was just the beginning for iconic singer Ozzy Osbourne. Long before he came out with his uh, Parkinson's diagnosis, he was singing for Black Sabbath. The one single off the album was Evil Woman. Yeah, Black Sabbath's music and lyrics were quite dark for the time. Uh, the importance of Black Sabbath's debut album was highlighted by author and former Metal Maniacs magazine editor Jeff Wagner, who said that Black Sabbath is the generally accepted starting point when heavy metal became a distinct for, or genre from rock and roll. And the legacy of Black Sabbath is also evident when you just look at their accolades. I mean, they were ranked by MTV as the greatest metal band of all time and placed second in VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Hard Rock list. Rolling Stone magazine ranked them number 85 in their 100 Greatest Artists of All Time, sold over 70 million records, uh, were inducted in the UK Music Hall of Fame in 05, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 06, won a couple of Grammy Awards, and just last year, Black Sabbath was presented a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And of course, the most famous member of the band is the legendary rock singer Ozzy Osbourne. And like I said earlier, I mean, uh, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and it uh, really is nothing shocking when you hear him speak, I gotta say. I just made my mind when I was when I've always had my mind for so long. Exactly, right? So Ozzy was quoted as saying about this diagnosis, which he received back in 2003, quote, I'm not dying from Parkinson's. I've been working with it most of my life. I've cheated death so many times. If tomorrow you read that Ozzy never woke up this morning, you wouldn't say, oh my goodness. You'd go, well, I guess it finally caught up to him. Yeah, that's... Uh, Pretty much the way I would view Ozzy Osbourne at this point in time. And one more quick historical fact here on Throwback Thursday. I thought I'd throw it down here for some rock fans on this day in 1972. Led Zeppelin had to cancel a Valentine's Day show. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, and co. They were scheduled to play an outdoor show in Singapore on February 14th, but a day prior, officials at the airport refused them entry. Not only were Led Zeppelin not allowed into the country, they were refused to even get off the plane. So they had to fly back to London. The reason? Well... It wasn't their reputation as rebellious rock bands. It wasn't, you know, some local distaste for drum solos or whatever the case. Apparently, it was the long hair that was sported by all four band members. Bill Cowan knows what I'm talking about. At this time, the anti-authoritarian cultural revolutions led by the youth of the day was sweeping the world, and Singapore was hoping to immune itself with a campaign against outward signs of rebellion and Western drug culture, and that included... Long hair on men. So male visitors were turned away or hassled for their locks. And a month before Led Zeppelin touched down, actually, an Australian visitor had reported that he had been advised he had two days to get a haircut or leave Singapore altogether. So they may have been ready for a show on the Day of Love, but the country of Singapore was not showing the legendary rockers any love on February 13th, 1972. 
Well, that wraps things up for me here today. I'd like to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed her time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Friday at 9.